Thank you for downloading this podcast. We believe this message from Pastor Ryan will uplift you today. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew. Chapter 21. Yeah, Matthew chapter 21. You say, well, you never got finished in Genesis 12. I know, I'm not done. But I was talking to you last week about an awakening and talking to you about the power of a revelation and talking about what a, a revelation should uh, establish in our life. And as, as I spend more time thinking about this thing, I, I think I've come to an understanding that, that the body of Christ, the church, you and I as individuals and believers of Jesus Christ have somewhat been neutralized by a lack of revelation. And let me say it this way so that you understand where I'm at. I think what has happened is the enemy has used our level of growth to almost be our own detriment. It's almost like you go to church enough, after a while you're like, I can't learn nothing else. You can't teach me anything else. I've, I've kind of grown to this place where I, I, I've got it all together. And I think what has happened is the enemy has used that and kind of weaved his way into where it has neutralized us from really being effective because the powers and the principalities and the darkness and the works of the flesh and all the other things that are going on globally in our world are requiring greater revelations and strategies of how the Lord would have us to deal with them. And I think for some of us, we've been in church just enough to be dangerous to ourselves. <laughs> I just don't want to accept defeat. I don't want to accept defeat. I don't want to accept that this is good enough. Because when we looked at Genesis 12 last week, we looked at Abraham who received a revelation from the Lord, and the Lord said, you've got to get out of Haran. You've got to leave Daddy. You've got to leave the things that are comfortable to you. And you've got to go where I'm going to reveal to you as you go, but you've got to be willing to move out. And I thought, you know what? That's, a, that's the kind of revelation we, we need because we've been in some places where we could survive where we are. You can probably get to heaven from where you are spiritually. I'm not calling you into question about your born-again experience. If your body ceased to function today and your lungs no longer work and your heart ceased beating, most of us would find ourselves in the presence of the Lord. It should be a wonderful reward. That's what we've all been believing for is heaven. My question to you is what are you going to do in the meantime? Are you waiting for a bus to come by? Are you waiting for death? Are you waiting for, for the end of time? Or are you going to be an effective agent in the days and the hours that you have on this earth? See, the tragedy for me would be for me to live every day waiting for heaven and not being effective now. And accepting just a status quo life. I don't want average I was an average student. And I was average because I did not apply myself. I was average because I decided I wanted to do other things rather than study. I liked the social side. I really didn't care so much about the educational instruction side of school. I liked the athletics. 
I like the crowd in the gym or the fans in the stadium, but I really could care less what my scholastic aptitude was because that didn't matter to me because it wasn't a priority. Apparently none of you were like I. Don't model yourself after me. I didn't need to bring a book home. You could cheat in the hallway and get the grade. Right? Okay, apparently there are a lot of you that don't want to admit that's the way you lived. Y'all in denial. Yeah, that's exactly right. They're in denial. That mentality stayed with me for many years. I went to work and I just wanted to do good enough to get a paycheck. I didn't really want to take ownership in the company because it wasn't my company. And, you know, the owner got all the profits, so I really didn't want to overextend myself because all I was getting was a 40-hour paycheck. So I just gave him just enough. And I preached there. So the mentality of being in high school and college into the workplace had a tendency to create a mentality of just enough. And then you have a wife and... And, and you, you, you have them, and for the first few months, it's a honeymoon. It's rich, it's full, it's exciting. And if you're not careful, the mentality of school and work becomes relationally a part of what's going on, and you have a tendency to start taking them for granted. And you expect certain things from them, and they expect certain things from you, and you just exist, and what you do is you cohabitate. You don't have marriage, you don't have oneness, you don't have harmony, you just live under the same roof paying bills. Come on now. What happens if that gets into my spirit life? What happens if the mentality of just enough gets into my spirit? then I have a tendency to go to church but not really be on board. I have a tendency to pray prayers but really not so consumed whether they're going to be answered or not because if they're not answered, i still got a backup plan. I'll sing the songs and I'll give Him praise, but I'm really not going to get too involved because you know what? I'm just not that kind of a person. I'm not emotional. I'll carry my Bible, but I might not read it for a week. But I'll carry it to church because that's what church people do. Quiet in here. I'm just laying a foundation. Y'all don't get nervous yet. I ain't got to the good stuff. Just working some things out in my head. Because I understand this pattern can become a part of lifestyle. Of just enough. Just enough to get by. Just enough to get to heaven. Just enough to stay married. Just enough to pay the bills. I'll work just enough to get just enough of a paycheck to pay just enough of my bills. I really don't want to thrive. Hmm. What has happened to us is because we've become so comfortable with just enough, we've become weary in well-doing. We can preach like none other. We can sing like angels. But when you have ingrained into your spirit just enough. You're weary. You're disenfranchised. You can sing, but it carries no weight. I can preach a word to you today, and it won't even touch your heart. People can hug you, love you, 
tell you how valuable you are. But when you have impregnated into your spirit just enough, you always question their motive. You always question the validity of their comment. So you're always living weary, frustrated, and disenfranchised. Why? Because you become accustomed with just enough. To me, that's neutralized. If I'm going to do anything for the kingdom of God, I should do it with all my heart, all my mind, all my strength, all my soul. I should get everything. Everything should be in it. If I'm going to be a husband, I should be everything for her. If I'm going to be a father, I should be everything for my children. If I'm going to be your pastor and serve you well, I should give you everything I got and leave nothing on the shelf. If I'm going to love you, I should love you as Christ loves you. See, I have a choice this morning. I can take a shortcut. I can preach you a sermonette. A Reader's Digest Theology of Culture and Relativity. Or we can take the, the, the other road, which is a little deeper, and challenge you to grow and to expand and to enlarge your life. Hmm. See, I have a choice this morning. I can strive to be technically correct. You know, technically correct. That means I have exactly 14 minutes to close this service, get you out the door without offending you, challenging you, and make you feel good about your life. Make sure you get to the restaurant in time that the good buffet stuff is still there so that you can get to the other things of life that you've got to do today because you know they're really, 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 really important. Here's the thing. In America, there are churches all over the landscape of this nation that is technically correct. And it's another quarter in the merry-go-round of religion as we go around and around and around, all the while waiting for death or a trumpet to sound. You say, Pastor, why have you been preaching on awakening? Because I'm sick of the neutrality that has paralyzed and plagued the church to the point where we are comfortable riding the merry-go-round of religion without really being a, all that kind of believer. Let me read you Matthew 21. If you have a Bible, look on with me for just a moment at verse number 12. Before you ask me where I got these thoughts I can blame some of it on the softball team. Sorry, Robert. Because as we were preparing their jersey orders, to me it wasn't good enough just to put five stones on the front of a jersey for them to represent. I felt like they needed a nickname. Something to identify Five stones as not just a softball team, but as a ministry. I don't know if you know anything about nicknames. There's a lot of them out there. 
I didn't figure the blue devils was probably fitting. Crusaders sounded like a good thing, but I thought that was terribly religious. Couldn't do saints because I wasn't sure about all of them. <laughs> Love you guys, but you know. <laughs> you understand where I'm at? I'm sitting in my office and I'm going, I really need some deep design creativity here. I need something from heaven. And I wish to tell you what the name of the softball team is. It's called the Temple Crashers. Let me explain that to you. I designed the front of the shirt, went and sat down with my vendor as we were preparing the shirts, and he looks up from his computer. He says, excuse me. He says, I noticed the front of the shirt says Temple Crashers. I said, yes, sir. He said, I'm not a real religious guy, but that seems terribly contradictory for a church softball shirt. Now we have what I call dialogue. <laughs> See, if it had been anything else, it would have made sense. Temple crashers made no sense to him. And on the front of their jerseys, right underneath it, it says Matthew 21 and verse 12. Ah, oh, your text today. Matthew 21 and verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers, and the, the sets of those who had sold doves, and said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you've made it a den of thieves. So while I'm sitting there in the man's office and he questions me about temple crashers, I had the opportunity to explain to him. Religion has set up a systemology and a philosophy. The church has no sacred or vital impart to the world that we live in. But we believe that Jesus has called us to throw out everything that's in the temple that does not pertain to righteousness, holiness, and purity. And we are the temple crashers. For we are not the ones who are going to allow the systems of our present religion to dictate this former glory. We're going to throw out all the things that men have made it and we're going to call it what it should be. A house of prayer, a house of power, and a house of praise and we shall be called temple crashers. Now, that being said, I even used my preacher voice. You know what I'm talking about. I didn't want him to think I was timid, didn't want him to think I was shy, didn't want him to think I didn't believe in this. I wanted him to know we're not on this earth to take a shortcut. Because when Jesus walked into the temple, it was Passover. It was one week prior to his crucifixion. It was the custom of the day for you to bring a without blemish animal sacrifice to the temple. It was your responsibility to bring your temple tax to the temple. At Passover, the priest had created a culture an environment, if you will, where the house of God, the church, the temple, 
had become very lucrative for them. They were using the church to profit. Sounds like today. Because what the priest had done was they had created an exchange of currency and they had created an environment where you could bring your offering, a dove, say. And as you brought your dove to the priest, he would observe it. And he would say it had a blemish, whether it did or not wasn't important. And he would take your dove, give it over here to his, his compadre, and they would give you another dove and sell it to you so that you would have a worthy offering to give to God. Meanwhile, the dove you just gave them, they recycled and took your, what you thought was a blemished dove, and they had a process of exchange. Sounds like the American church to me. Bunch of manipulative preachers telling you you're not good enough and that they are. And that you need me to make it to heaven. Honey, they ain't but one who died for you and only one you should fear and serve. And his name is Jesus Christ. And if we will come back and have an awakening, we can cause those things that have been set up in the house of God to be thrown out. Why were the priests able to manipulate good, honest, worshiping Because they used the level of influence that God had given them as a priest to manipulate people. There became a law of exchange. They had quite the ring going. Now, how many know this wasn't the first time they'd ever pulled this stunt? I've got to believe it had been going on for some time. And I've got to believe that at this moment, when Jesus crashes the temple, it was the awakening he wanted us to understand. Because he's one week away from giving up his life. He's one week away from being crucified for the sin of humanity. And he walks into the temple and he throws out the money changers and he takes this this system that they have of exchanging animals and throws it out and turns over the tables. How many know that was a sermon I'd have liked to have seen illustrated? You think I'm crazy. What would it be like if Jesus came to church? For this scripture says Jesus came to church. And when he came to church, he introduced them to revelation. What is revelation? It's the enlightenment and the understanding of new precepts. I taught you last week three things about revelation. Do you recall what they are? Revelation changes what first? Changes your condition. A revelation should change the way you live. Change your condition. A revelation should do what? Secondly, change your comprehension. It should shift you from what you do know into something you did not have understanding of. Thirdly, revelation should do what? Change what for you? 
your course. So when Jesus goes into the temple and he begins to throw them out, he is releasing to them revelation. What is the revelation? He says this, this is my house. Contrary to what you believe, this is my house. Apparently you didn't see that in Scripture. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of what? Thieves. My house. What's he saying? I'm reclaiming, reclaiming ownership. You want to see an awakening in America? He needs to reclaim his house. I'm going to mess with you right here. Pastor, it's your church. No, it ain't. I'm a steward at best. And sometimes not so good at that. This is not my church. So I go to Pastor Ryan's church. No, you don't. You go to his church. You go to his church. Don't put that on me. I'm just steward. I'm just taking my full five-fold office gift and operating in it and doing what he asked me to do because that's what he said do. It's his house. If you want to have an awakening, you better have a new revelation. It's his. If you're parading around here going, well, I'm the biggest tither in the church. That doesn't give you special rights. That means you got a good job. Oh, but Pastor, because I've had them show up in my office before, not here, but in the past going, I have funded your ministry. I have believed in you. I've given to you. I've supported you. So now you can't do this. Oh, excuse me. I didn't see the nail prints in your hands. Excuse me. Slip off your fancy shoes and show me a nail print in your feet. Pull up your Armani shirt and let me see a pierced side. Because if you can't prove to me you've been crucified and resurrected, you're just a giver and a steward of the Most High and have no authority over what you call your church. Oh, it got quiet in here. I can hear it all oh, quiet. Oh, no. Yeah, but Pastor, you can't run this church without my gifts. Oh, really? Did you walk on water? Come on. Did you turn the water into wine? I don't think so. He don't need my gifts. He don't need your gifts. He can do this without us. He has elected and chosen and allowed us to be a part of this. What a privilege it is to be a part of his church. The shame would be that I'm a part of his church and I don't have an awakening that it really belongs to him and that he is the owner of it and I'm just the steward of it and I'm here to give him everything I can because I've been called to be an ambassador of it. Shame would be for you to go to church and think it's all about you. Oh, quiet in here. Like, oh, Pastor, don't go there now. Most of our churches operate totally on self-reliant technical abilities. It's like the little boy. Can I, can I just talk to you? It's like the little boy who's on the sandy beach and the daddy's sitting many feet away and the little boy's out there with his little plastic shovel and he's digging in the sand. He's just having a big time, digging in the sand. In a few minutes, he hits a rock. He digs around the rock, and the father's just observing. The little boy's digging around the rock, and a few minutes, the little boy, the, he's down there trying to 
move the rock and shift the rock. And you see the boy kicking the rock. And Betty's just standing back observing as this boy is struggling to move the rock. And in a few minutes, Dad walks down to where the little boy is. He says, son, what's going on? And the little boy looks up, and he's got little tears in his eyes. He's going, Daddy, I'm trying to move the rock. And Daddy looks down at him. He said, son, you didn't use all your strength. The little boy's a little upset with Dad. He said, yes, Dad, I have. I've tried to pick it up. I've tried to kick it. I've tried to dig around it. Daddy, I can't move the rock. And Daddy looks back down at him. He said, you haven't used all your strength, son. The little boy stands up and says, yes, I have, Daddy. Daddy looks at the little boy and says, no, you haven't. Daddy reaches down and picks up the rock, pulls it out. The little boy looks at him, and he said, you didn't ask me to help you. That's how church operates. We dig around our rocks. We kick at our rocks. We try to pick them up, and we don't realize that we have been given an authority with our daddy who will help us pick it up. And at best, what we want is we want our church to be codependent on our pastors to help carry our rocks. Better yet, pastors want you to cry out to them, help me with my rock. Help me with my rock. Listen. I'm going to help you with your rock by pointing you to one who has greater authority. I'm going to help you with your rock. I don't need you to call me and tell me, Pastor, I need you. I don't need that. I'm not that insecure. I want you to know how to call out to your daddy. Say, Daddy, I got some things that I can't move. I want you to utilize and have a revelation that he owns it all. I don't know if I'm going to be able to help you this morning or not. See, I want a greater revelation of who this is that's going to help me. The Bible says that we are the body of Christ, but he's the head. I need a greater revelation of the head. The Word says we're the temple, and he's the cornerstone. I need a greater revelation of the cornerstone. The Word says that that I'm a branch, and he's the vine. But I need a greater revelation of the vine. Think about what I'm saying to you. I don't want you stuck with just getting by. I don't want you average. I don't want you neutralized. I want you to come to the place where he turns over some temples in your life and turns over some tables and reprioritizes your life, reclaims your life for his service. I'm tired of doing this on my own. I'm tired of going to church and having perfection on the surface. But deep down inside, we're aching and crying out for some help. Aren't you tired of going to church polished? Like you've got your stuff together? Because you're afraid of the fear of the, of the opinions of somebody that might judge you incorrectly. So you polish up the best you can. You come into the house of God. Yes and amen. All the while, deep down in your spirit, you're weary and worn out. Because you've been kicking and digging around rocks. Because your behavior is always based on your belief system. If you believe it's all about you and it's all about what you can produce, then you're always, always, always weary and worn out. I gave up trying to make people say amen a long time ago. 
I gave up trying to preach people happy a long time ago. I've just come to the place, if I can bring you to an understanding or a revelation of the strength you have in Christ, the better off I am. Let me read this to you, and I'll get you out of here because, you know, we don't want you to stay any too long. Can I remind you of something? The Word calls you sheep. He calls himself shepherd. Hallelujah. He didn't leave me without direction. Let me read this. Let me finish this up. He said, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. This is really where I wanted to get to today, if the Lord would allow us. Verse 14. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Verse 14. Then. Then. After. After what? After he removed what the house had become after he removed the, the bureaucracy and the sin that was going on, when he reclaimed it, you understand that? When he reclaimed the temple, he reprioritized the purpose of the temple. You know what we need in America? You know what we need in my life? You know what I need? You know what your pastor needs? I need him to reclaim me and reprioritize some things in my life. What is important to me? What is the priority of my existence? But he can't reprioritize what he don't own. Did you hear what I said? He cannot reprioritize what he does not own. So if you do not give him all of you, then he can't reorganize you. He can't reprioritize you. He cannot release what he wants to release in you when you're still in charge of certain areas of your life. Quiet, quiet, quiet. It's because you're listening, right? Not because you all sleepy-headed and stayed up too late, right? Some of you did, I know. Give me just, just give me a couple minutes and I'll finish this up. Because, see, if he doesn't have total authority over my life, then, then what I'm doing is I'm holding back some things. There's just some things you know you just don't turn over to the Lord. He wants all of my temple. Oh, wait a minute. That reminds me of Scripture. You and I are the temple. Oh. We're the temple. I am the temple of the Lord. The Holy Spirit dwells in me. I am a temple. So if I'm a temple, then should he not have the same authority to come into my life that he did here in Matthew 21? If he can storm into Matthew 21 and throw over tables and run out all that junk in there, should we not allow him the same authority to come into my personal temple and throw over some stuff that I know is going on that is foolishness and disobedience to the cause of Christ? Amen. How do you get to... I've done that in Africa when it was lightning. Only it had a cord connected to electricity. That was a whole different kind of fear factor. <laughs> this one don't bother me. Ain't no cord. <laughs> Still scares me, though, every once in a while, because some of you might be praying something, and I might need to know it. <laughs> mm. Y'all trying to clean my temple out. I feel you. I feel you. That's all right. See, he can't clean out what he doesn't have authority over. 
How could Jesus walk into the temple there and clean it out? Because it was his. Regardless of who the priests were, regardless of who was in authority over the temple, he said, look, you have delegated authority. It's my house. So when Jesus walked in there, he walked in like he owned the place. How many know that's some swag? Huh? I mean, you, you don't walk in there, well, you know, I, I really want to change some things. No, he walked in there and go, it's over. Your game, over. How many know that was some kind of show? Have you ever tried to turn over a table gently? Huh? How many know if, if he was really reclaiming it, he was reclaiming it with intense passion? Can, can, it's my sermon. Let me preach it the way I want. I see him throwing him. My story. I see him grabbing a priest. <laughs> Blue, 42, hut, punt. My story. I don't I just see it though. I just see Jesus so enraged with what had happened to his house. That when he reclaims it, he reclaims it with violence. Can I say this? I really believe he wants to reclaim my temple and it may require violence because I'm a stubborn people, a stiff-necked people, a rebellious, stony-hearted people, and he may have to get violent with me. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. Pastor, be eloquent. We need eloquence. Eloquence means you like me. We don't need that. That doesn't change a stony heart. That doesn't shift or melt away a hardened heart. We need him to violently take over what belongs to him. See, for me to stand up here and say, I want you, Lord, to take over this church. What I'm saying is, I want you to take over me. I want you to take over the church violently means I want you to take over your people. I can't legislate your behavior, but if he takes over you, he'll legislate it. I'm not going home with you to see what you watch or what you do or what you partake in. But he is. He's going where you go. He's in you. Should we not allow him to reclaim it so we can get some repriorities and some new values and some new virtues of how we're going to live and get this new thing in me? For, for me, when he walks in, he throws out all that mess, he clears it out, then sick people show up. Hello? Then, then, afterwards, after what? After he got rid of everything, he reclaimed the house. What happens? Blind folks show up. Lame people show up. And what does he do? He ministers healing to them. He calls it a house of prayer, right? Then it becomes a house of power because now he is releasing an anointing that destroys blindness and those that are lame. So now he's releasing healing. So now his presence is in the house. Think about the thought. He calls it a house of prayer, releases healing, which is power. It releases praise because the kids start crying out praise. Come on, that's the next verse down. Next verse down. Now it becomes a house of praise. Why? Because there's a bunch of little kids squalling and crying and leaping and dancing. It looks like our altar at Five Stones. Right? All these little kids up here just waving and worshiping and dancing and crying. I'm going to say, well, you ought to put them in the nursery. 
No, we ought to put them right here so they can cry, Hosanna. You touch one of these little kids, you're going to mess with some mean people in here. You know, they ought not act like that. You ought to act like them. My opinion. You ought to act like them. If you can't act like them, then the only problem you have is with them because they got something you don't. Let them sing. Let them dance. Let them just wave in the presence. Let them be in the presence. What did Jesus say? He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Then those who were blind and those that lame showed up and he healed them. And when the priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant, they were mad, they were angry. Why? Because their operation of wealth had been shut down. They were mad. Temple crashers showed up, and guess who got mad? Religion. (laughs) They're indignant. They're mad. They're angry. They're spitting mad. I mean, their earlobes are red. You know what I'm talking about? Their forehead is red. They're angry. Why? Because Jesus had the authority to walk in and reclaim and reprioritize his house, and they couldn't stop him. I got good news for you. If you didn't get nothing out of this, there ain't a religious devil, demon, or institution that can stop at an awakening. No, 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 no. There is not enough religious people in this community that can shut down an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. There's not enough bureaucracy and theology and goofiness that can shut down an awakening of the Holy Ghost because when Jesus reclaims His temple and He reprioritizes His temple and the power of prayer comes back to the house and the manifestation of the presence comes back to the house and the children begin to cry and weep and praise and cry, Hosanna, the only people getting mad are religious people. The presence remains. The prayers continue to prevail and the presence of God is still released and praise is still ushered up and then Jesus can say now I can depart I got it back the way it should be and Jesus said gotta go now come on I'm just read scripture he he said now I gotta go why can I leave because I left it with children crying and weeping and praising I left it in the hands of those who were blind and now can see lame and now can walk and the only people mad are the priests and the scribes. I believe the kingdom of God is pregnant with possibilities. I don't question God's ability to move on our behalf. But I do question how committed we are to allowing him to throw out all the junk in my life and reprioritize my life so that healing flows and prayer flows and praise flows from me. I don't ever want him to leave me, but I'd like for him to know that I'm a worthy steward. Come on, stand with me in this room. Stand with me in this room. For further information on Five Stones Church, please visit us online at www.fivestoneschurch.info 
or plan to visit us at 224 Brown Industrial Boulevard in the city of Canton, Georgia. Thank you for downloading this podcast. We believe